If I was growing up in 2021, I would have been diagnosed, most likely, as gender non-conforming. And after they said colleges got through with me, there would be no telling what would happen with my life. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future, episode 238, uh, July 8th, 2021. And this show is brought to you by listeners like you. On the show, we like to ask for value for value. If you are listening to the show, it means that you probably get some level of value out of this, or maybe you're just totally insane and you enjoy wasting your time. Well, there's a couple of different ways that you can give value back to support the show, to keep the show rolling and to actually make it better. You know, thousands of people every month turn to this show to help understand the the social, the, the attacks, the affronts, the strategies that are being set up against us in, in the different spheres and domains of society. And our purpose has never been more vital, more clear to help empower you and I, because I'm getting a lot out of this too, to help us understand the world better, to be better situated in the world so that we can move forward and own our future. So financial contributions from listeners like you is a critical part of this show. And you can give today to keep the show free by visiting the website lucasscrobot.com. You can give your hard cold fee out there or you can get one of the podcasting 2.0 certified apps by visiting newpodcastapps.com like Podfriend, Breeze, or Sphinx, or Podstation. And you can stream your Bitcoin one cents and two cents, one pence and two pence, as you listen minute by minute. I like that. That's how I personally enjoy listening to my podcast because then I know that I am engaging and giving value in the measure that I get it. And it's just a fun, fun way and rewarding way to listen. Well, as I said, if I was growing up in America right now, as in 2021, little Lucas Jedediah Boy Scrobot, if that was me, I, today, I would be labeled as gender non-conforming. My school would have probably secretly pushed me onto puberty blockers and uh, to help my depression and they would be pushing me towards, you know, transitioning into my my right gender assignment. And gosh, just I'm going to get into this whole gender assignment thing in a moment. But as a kid, I enjoyed sewing. I loved cooking. I still like cooking. Still, I, I'm the one that's sewing things up and stitching things up. As you can see, I like wearing suits on my episode. I like, you know, little, little uh, ties. I like I like that stuff. I like cooking. Every week I cook sourdough bread. I love baking. I was just okay at sports. I like classical music. And then in middle school, high school, I was depressed. I was a loner. I didn't have a whole bunch of friends. I mean, I, I did, but then they all left. And then I had my own issues that I was sorting through. I would have for sure been labeled as gender nonconforming, you know? Well, you, well, there was that one time, Lucas, when you were three, you were playing dress up with your sister, your older sister, and you were playing Barbies together. Ah, yeah, you're gender nonconforming. We need to make sure that you fit into your right gender roles, your right gender assignment. We should transition you. We don't know whether you, you know what you are, so we're going to give you puberty blockers that are going to destroy your bone strength and probably cause you to be infertile. Who knows if you'll actually end up going back into puberty later on in your life after you hit 20 and you wake up to this. Gender nonconforming. What is gender nonconforming? Well, here is a clip. I just recently read this book embodied by Preston Sprinkle. And here's a, a clip from his book uh, on gender nonconforming. Gender nonconforming is a broad, elastic category that often includes anyone who doesn't conform to gender stereotypes. There it is. A boy who prefers violin over football might be considered gender nonconforming. 27% of California youth ages 12 to 17 are considered gender nonconforming. Is it really medically necessary to inject one in every four teenagers full of cross-sex hormones? 
gender non-conforming. That is the beginning of it all. And it's so funny, and I'm gonna get into, we're gonna be hitting this a little bit on the first half of this episode. It is so funny to me that this whole time we've been hearing, we need to break down the alpha male stereotypes. We need to break down the woman in the kitchen stereotypes. We need to break down these, these social constructions of gender. Okay, yeah. Wow, look, Luke, Lucas broke those down. Wow, Lucas's wife, Rachel, she, she is a CrossFit level one. She, she's actually a CrossFit coach. I'm not. Wow, that's gender nonconforming. You like lifting weights? Rachel, you like lifting weights? Well, oh, I don't know. That's not very ladylike. Oh, Rachel, when you were a little, bo- little girl, you were playing with your brother out in the dirt and in, in the creek and with frogs. That's, that's not very ladylike. That's gender nonconforming. We better start now while she's still young to help reassign her to her right gender. Wait, wait a minute. I thought this whole time the argument was girls should be able to play basketball and still be girls and boys should be able to be sensitive. I was a sensitive kid. Boys should be able to be sensitive and love cooking and still be boys. But now we're saying, ah, no, if you're not gender conforming, we need to actually conform you to look like the other gender. We need to transition you to become not your biological male that you are or not biologically female that you are because you must have been born in the wrong body. So, oh, I can't, I can't even, it, it just, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense. Well, there's a there's an interview by Jordan Peterson and Abigail Schreier, uh, probably a month or two ago. Excellent interview. Abigail wrote the book Irreversible Damage. And here's a, this first clip. We're going to be playing a couple clips uh, from this episode as well. Here's Jordan Peterson. Psychotherapists are now bound, as far as I've been able to determine by examining the law, to adopt precisely this gender-affirming position. And I believe that that's the case in Ontario. So I don't do adolescent um, therapy. But if I had a young adult, say 18 or older, come to me who was expressing um, confusion about their gender identity, let's say, or was gingerly testing the waters to determine if perhaps they were transgender, I believe that I'm required by law to to adopt a position that would affirm that fundamentally. That's right. Yes, a sword of Damocles hangs over professionals' heads now. And what it says is you must agree with the patient's self-diagnosis. Put another way, it must. It suggests that you should begin with the conclusion. <laughs> Your conclusion must be that this person has gender dysphoria. And then you can you know, go along from there and start prescribing treatments. That's not how medicine or any other area of therapy is practiced. You don't begin with the conclusion. You investigate it. It's science. It's science, folks. It's science. You know, when, when I Google, when I Google my symptoms online on Google, I get the craziest things. If I, if I walk into the doctor, hey, doctor, you know, I, my neck feels a little sore. You know, I looked it up on, online. It looks like I'm going to die. And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, you are. I think I have feel pressure in the back of my head. It must be a brain tumor. You're right. Let's put you under right now and cut your brain open and see what's in there. Let's just take it out. Take your brain out. But this is what's happening. If I was growing up right now and I expressed my confusion and they said, well, do you, do you find yourself being more sensitive? Well, yeah. Oh, man. You must have been born in the wrong body. We're going we're gonna to help you. Don't worry. Don't worry about your parents, Luke. We're going to help you. I mean, even, even when I was growing up, psychologists, when I was going through therapy, they cut my parents out of things all the time. And my parents, I remember my parents being so mad about it. And I was so, so confused as a teenager. Why are you mad about this? I can make my own decisions. And now looking back, I'm like, oh my goodness, these, these therapists, you know, they have their agenda and they want to spin things a certain way. And that was, I mean, that was back in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. And today, if, if a girl or a boy 
walks into their counselor's office at school and starts expressing maybe confusion about who they are. Next thing you know, a, or you mean a five-year-old in class says, it says, I'm a girl. Teacher is forced to, maybe not forced, but could latch onto that and be like, yeah, they are a girl. And now the, the parent wants to take their child away. No, you can't do that. Because now that you're, you're abusing your child, you're, you're not affirming the identity of who they are because only, only they can know who they are. And heaven forbid you are a, a doctor that doesn't, that's non-gender affirming, a non-gender affirming doctor who says, okay, well, before we jump to that conclusion, let's actually take some time. And let's see how this plays out. You have years to make this decision. Let's not make it overnight. But that is exactly what they're doing. They're making this decision overnight. And as Abel said, said, it is no longer science. Here's another clip with Abigail in it. Right. I mean, I interviewed affirmative therapists and I would say to them and they would say, well, some kids are gender fluid. And I would say to them, well, then how can you recommend rever- you know, top surgery on a young woman who's, who may be turn out to be gender fluid, meaning she decides at some point she isn't, she was wrong. She isn't a boy, she's a girl. And, and um, you know, this response was essentially, well, only she can know her truth. I mean, we are, we are, we are this is not medicine any longer. It's closer to witchcraft. Amen. Preach it, sister. It is closer to witchcraft. It is no it is not medicine. The fact that someone can walk in and self-diagnose themselves and instantly we're pushing hormone blockers and young teens are getting double mastectomies with, without having their parents' consent that this is legal in places in the West. And on top of that, if a parent tries to intervene, I believe in Canada, the state can actually take their kids away because it's, it's a hate crime. Another thing she said here, society, I mean, society, as I said earlier, has spent so much time trying to push these, to break the alpha male stereotype. Men need to be more sensitive. And then when they are, or when women are, are you know, displaying their, their strength and love sports and love basketball, and they're a little bit more strong and fit, they're like engineering. Was that now all of a sudden gender nonconforming? And they need to transition to become a male. And as she said, okay, well, if gender is fluid, then why do, why do we need to do all these surgeries if gender is fluid? If the argument is that gender is separate from biology and therefore, then therefore you, you can't be born in the wrong body because your gender is fluid. Maybe it will change back one day. So why are we cutting and pasting if if it's all fluid, if you're going to move from one stage to the next stage to the next stage, how do you not know that when you're 30, you're going to wake up originally as a young female, you go through all these puberty blockers, you become infertile, you, you get a, a double mastectomy and get a hysterectomy, you have your uterus cut out, you can't have kids, and all of a sudden you wake up and you say, actually, I, because my gender is fluid, I now identify as a female, and oh, it's too, it's too late. And then the, the other part that just gets me that she says here, uh, you know, only, only you can know your truth. Only kids can know their truth. Point. She isn't, she was wrong. She isn't a boy. She's a girl. And, and, um, you know, this response was essentially, well, only she can know her truth. Only she can know her truth. That line. Uh, we talk about this all the time. How, how, how am I or you supposed to discern the, the truth of our hearts and our identity? I mean, how, how do you do that? You have to do that within the confines of society. You have to do that within the confines of your family. You have to do that within the confines of metaphysics. You have to do that within the confines of science and biology. The way that we come to truth is by having multiple layers of building a worldview and, and confirming what is true and so we can't wake up one day and say, well, what's true to me is true to me, and the rest of the world has to bend around it. The way that we discern truth is not in a silo, 
and it's not by ourselves. And we've talked about this at, at length when we talked about Tom, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas. We talked about the, the four laws of nature, natural, eternal, uh, human, and uh, uh, I forgot the fourth one, divine. That there, there are eternal laws. There are divine laws, which are, are revealed, revelation that comes down. Then there are human laws, and those things are the, the truths that can change from culture to culture or time to time. For instance, there was never a, a truth or law that said that, well, you should wear a seatbelt when you're in a car 300 years ago because there wasn't cars. So there's human laws or cultural laws and then natural laws. Th those, those are the, the, the framework, the higher abstractions of truth that then we lay down on what's happening in the day in and day out. And if, if it's all so fluid, then why are we the, making these decisions so hasty? What's the motivation? Well, I mean, we're not going to be getting into this in this episode, but clearly there's a large financial incentive. It's expensive to transition. It's very expensive. So if you're one of the few doctors who's great at it and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're getting money from the government to be able to do that. It, it makes sense that there's a financial incentive behind all this. Well, Oh, oh my goodness. It, it, what is most startling about what's happening with this whole push and this whole movement, we talked about it in the previous episode, episode 237. We talked about how it's being pushed through media onto children. But what we didn't touch on is how it's actually touching a very specific demographic, that the explosion. We're seeing it in culture, but in the subset of culture that we're actually seeing touched the most is young teenage girls. So I'll play the clip and then we'll, we'll break down this argument. Biological girls are given high doses of testosterone as young as 12. They're having their uterus and ovaries removed at 16, the same age that some biological boys are having their penises removed. And there's an ongoing push to lower the age where kids can get hormones and surgery without their parents' consent. Currently, in Oregon, 15-year-olds can medically transition without the consent of their parents. This, I mean, I don't even have words for this. The fact that this is the reality, that we're pushing this, I didn't know anything about my life when I was 15. And yet, boys are getting their penises cut off and women are getting their uteruses taken out without parent consent? Is this, the, is this really a safe world that we want to build for society? It's irreversible damage. Completely irreversible, irreversible damage. And what's also with, within this argument, parents are told by medical professionals that if your kid doesn't transition, and I just was in a conversation on Instagram about this, well, if your kid doesn't transition, well, look at the suicide rates. The suicide rates are, are so high if, if their kid doesn't transition. And so the kids are, the parents are being forced saying, if you don't do this, your kid can die of suicide. Which it's true. The suicide rates among trans, the trans community, is extremely high, and that should be extremely startling. And it is extremely startling. What's more startling is that after transition, there is not a, a decrease in the rates of suicide. Here is Abigail again. There's also, of course, the Tavistock report out of the gender clinic, the largest gender clinic in the United Kingdom, um, which showed that there was no um, mental health improvement, no improvement in suicidal ideation um, for young women who have been started on, you know, puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones. So, um, you know, th there, we, we aren't seeing the improvement that was supposedly, you know, claimed as the, the, the rationale for starting young people on these um, treatments. There was a, a Swiss longitudinal study that spanned, I believe, about 30 years. The study showed that someone who transitions is 19, 19 times more likely to die by suicide after their transition than the general population. 19 times after the transition. When you look at that longitudinal study. Now, uh, I've been told, I've not seen the numbers, I've not seen the facts, I've not read the studies. 
I've told that they're out there, that there's other studies that say, well, actually, the rates after transition are lesser among people who aren't facing any sort of uh, shame or rejection from family. But across the globe, there is greater acceptance now maybe than ever before in widespread media coverage of transgenderedness. So the fact that the fact in my mind, the fact that there are longitudinal studies that are double blind tested that show that going through a transition and going through treatment actually isn't solving the problem at a time where there is a lot of acceptance, where there's legal protection, where where it's something that's normal. It's something that is celebrated, celebrated, celebrated in the media. It is waving a pride flag in America is a better sign of your, your moral superiority than, you know, wearing a cross. It is, it is the statement of, of, uh, of saying that you're part of a certain religion of tolerance and acceptance. It is accepted. Transgenderism is accepted more now than ever. So then why are these suicide rates 19 times higher post-transition than pre-transition. Well, it it gets more convoluted once we break down into, into understanding, well, with all of this wide-scale acceptance, you would think that there would be a lot of people from all walks of life, all ages of life coming out if this was really just because the argument is, well, this has just been something that people have been repressed for thousands of years, and now that there's an acceptance, there is more people coming out, and it's just because we've had a, a you know, great new humanistic awakening, great awakening of, of morality. We've come to a new stage of progress in society, more equal society, but we're actually seeing a specific demographic having a much larger explosion in the trans movement than others. And so here's another clip from uh, Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied. There's been a stunning reversal in the sex ratio among kids and teenagers identifying as trans. The United Kingdom, for instance, has witnessed a 1,460% increase among males, and a 5,337% increase among females identifying as trans compared to the number of referrals 10 years prior. So ten in the last 10 years, we've seen in the UK, now the reason that a lot of people use the UK data is because it's centralized health government, and so you have it all compiled there in one place. It's some of the, the arguments that I've heard. But in the UK, we, we saw in the last 10 years, a 1,000% growth among trans males. And historically, it's been young boys over the last hundred years that this has been documented. It's been young boys who experienced experienced uh, gender dysphoria at a young age and were part of that trans community. But, but now in this clip, I'll play it again. It's actually, they saw a 5,000% growth over the last 10 years versus a 1,000% growth among young males, among young females. Here it is again. 1,460% increase among males and a 5,337% increase among females. 5,337% increase among females. This is startling. And you have to ask, why is it young female teens that are seeing this explosion. Well, here's Jordan Peterson. And so I'd read this book called The Discovery of the Unconscious by Henri Allenberger, and he talked about psychological uh, contagions and documented them going back hundreds of years, as a matter of fact, and I was aware that such things occurred, and it struck me as highly likely that confusion about gender identity on the ideological end and categorical front would translate itself into confusion about gender among adolescents in particular who were just starting to catalyze their gender identity. Pathological contagions. And this is what we were talking about last episode of when we put in media a certain worldview, 
we can then push that forward as contagion, but it seems that this spreads most rapidly among a certain age group and demographic, which is young teen females. Here's why. We have a hundred year diagnostic history of gender dysphoria, and it always afflicted boys and men. Okay. And now for the very first time in the last decade, there has been a giant surge in a different population claiming to be gender dysphoric. It is which is that 5,000% versus a 1,000%. Claiming to be gender dysphoric. It has shifted from, from onset in young boys and to teenage girls with no childhood history, and it's shifted from men to women. So I asked them, when you have a, a, a demographic jump, and all of a sudden they are, as, as these teenage girls now, the leading demographic. So these are girls who, as a population, experienced virtually no gender dysphoria throughout history, suddenly being the leading demographic. I would ask them, what do you call that? Is there a scientific term for this? And they would always, always say, yes, epi epidemic. Now, of course, the moment you say epidemic, you're going to get shunned from every place within society because that is implying that there is some sort of sickness. Now, it's important to note that in Abigail's book, Irreversible Damage, she is specifically looking at this demographic of young teen girls and how it's spreading among young teen girls and the decisions that are being made for these young teen girls. She's she, In this interview with Jordan Peterson, she talks about you know, I'm, I'm not talking about people who are adults and transitioned as adults and they seem to be perfectly happy with their lives. I'm, I'm not talking about that. She, and I'm personally not talking about that either. If, if they're an adult and they want to do that, you know what? I'm not out to control their life. I'm not. But we do have a responsibility to protect children, which is the same argument that was be, being made by that lady who was calling out the, the, the man who's in the woman's spa in the previous episode. She's saying, we are here to protect women and children. And that is what we're doing in this episode as well. We're making this argument of saying, we need to protect children from this. Well, why is this contagion spreading so rapidly among these young teen girls? Here is Abigail. Teenage girls tend to spread these psychic epidemics because they are very, their modes of friendship involve co-rumination, taking on their friend's pain. They like to rehash their own pain and they like to take on their friend's pain. And they are even willing to suspend reality in order to sort of get on the team of their friend. If you look at the anorexia, it afflicts one population. If you look at bulimia, it afflicts one population and it grows and it spreads among friend groups, just as this does. It's young women encouraging them, each other in self-harm. This is, and if you look at cutting, same thing. And we know, we've, clinicians have known for years that you cannot house anorexics together in a hospital ward without being very careful because they will encourage each other to learn lose more and more weight. We know that women Right, and you that, see that online with this. regards to anorexia, right? With the pro-anorexia right. sites and the pro-bulimia sites. Okay, there's, there's a lot in that clip. She's talking about bulimia, anorexia, and, and we know that bulimia and anorexia, which, as she said before, it's, this is as if it's witchcraft, bulimia and anorexia are these social contagions that when I've heard these stories that of, of young girls opening up a door and seeing a woman vomiting into the toilet, she's bulimic, and it's as if something jumped on her and that young girl became bulimic. It has this, this social contagion for whatever reason. And we, we see this among suicide as well. There is a, a, a film that was put out, uh, I forgot the name of it, on Netflix that was documenting teen suicide, trying to prevent it, a documentary trying to prevent teen, teen suicide. And what happened afterwards, after that film aired, the, the following month or two, three months, there was a spike in suicides among young teens. There is, There are some things that are psychological pathogens that carry from one person to another. And, and this has been well known about suicide and well talked about around the idea of suicide that it it's like a multiplier. It spreads from one person to the other through a community. It's contagious. It's dark. It's, it's oppressive. 
The same thing with anorexia. The same thing with cutting, self-harm. That is something that is socially can spread by seeing. I remember when I was a kid, I, I had I struggled with that, but I also struggled with that because I, I saw my friends doing that. And so I took that onto myself. These social contagions, and this is what we're talking about when we talk about media. In the previous episode, we, we hit on two shows, Blue's Clues and, and uh, Disney Plus. Well, the Insiders database released this article, Insiders, saying that there's 259 LGBTQ characters in kids' cartoons. 200 and 59. There's a chart that they put out and they showed that the the rise of LGBTQ characters in animated kids series over times. In 95, there is one. In about 2004, there is three. 2005, seven. Then leading up to 2010 for four years is about two in each year. And then come 2014, we see a spike up to 22. And then the numbers climb from 22 down to 8, 19, 32, 29. In 2019, there were 76 additional LGBTQ characters in animated kids series. 2020, 47. 2021, there's been 17. This is, been, is intentionally sown. The, there's articles well documented. I, I, I didn't pull them up to talk about in depth in this show, but talking about how people in the industry are specifically hiring LGBT community people and then specifically writing these characters into it. And it has a specific agenda. They have a specific goal. We're going to talk about what that specific goal is in just a minute. But these contagions, are being carried through the media realm. In this interview with Dr. Peterson and, and Abigail, Ms. Abigail Schreyer, they talk about how a lot of these young girls, they're isolated, they're, they're connected to, to social media more than they should be, they, they don't have a good social structure, they're, they're turning to Tumblr, and they're finding these communities where all of a sudden they're encountering other trans young girls and they find their identity. They say, well, you, this is who you are. Or there are stories that she tells of an entire class of young girls in an all-girls school coming out as trans, 80% of a class coming out as trans on the same day. How, how does that happen? How does it happen that we went from you know, one in 10,000 kids were trans just a couple of years ago to all of a sudden now it's one, one in 200 kids in a high school. Is it just that, oh, we're not, we're not repressing it anymore and therefore people are finally can be who they're really meant to be or is, is it that in the last 10 years that we've seen a massive spike of, of push within media it, all forms of media, not just animated media, but social media and platforms, language, pushes all over to push this identity into the hearts and the minds of children. And what effect, what is the long-term effect? What will that be? Well, as I said, there is an agenda here, which brings us to our next segment. Yeah, that makes sense. Welcome to Yeah, That Makes Sense, the segment of the show where in the post-truth society, where we've exchanged the truth for lies, reason for postmodernism, the only thing left is irrationality, making the absurd make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. The absurd finally makes sense. Well, uh, Andrew Cuomo, if you don't know who, Andrew Cuomo is. He is a politician, the governor of New York. Uh, his daughter, 23-year-old Michaela, she came out this week as demisexual. Woohoo! When I was in elementary school, I feared that I was lesbian. 
when I was in middle school, I came out to my family and close friends as bisexual. When I was in high school, I discovered pansexuality and thought that's the flag for me. And I recently uh, learned more about demisexuality and have believed that that identity resonates with me most. So I think that we're always evolving and growing and trying to label ourselves only limits us. These spectrums are as fluid as we are and attachment to labels only restricts us. It's kind of ironic. Attachments to labels only restrict us. And yet she went through a bunch of labels that she has been attached to and apparently moved on from. One point, point one in this is what, what is pansexual? Pansexual, if you don't know, is you're just attracted to anything, anything you, I, I'm attracted to, I'm attracted to this phone. Wow. Oh, I'm attracted to that chair. That's pansexual to anything. Demisexual, however, is a person who doesn't feel sexual attraction unless there is a strong emotional and relational bond with a person they like. Now, many pundits online have pointed out that that sounds like a woman. Oh, she came out as a woman. I mean, it's true. Most women have a sexual attraction to people that have strong emotional bonds with. But now, but now we have to create these new titles, these new labels to be able to fit in with this new, bold world of transgenderism. It's, it's, it's a brave new world out there. Well, th the point of bringing this up and how crazy this is and how really it, it all makes it all does make sense is the other things that she says in in this clip. I figured since it's difficult, but and brave, but hip or cool to be not hetero in my liberal bubbles that some of the feedback I'd get would be that I was attention seeking, but the amount of emphatic messages of support and thanks were enormous and made it really all worth it. Wait, I'm, I don't know if you caught that. So first she says, you know, I know that it's so brave and courageous to come out. And I know that it in my circle, it's really popular and hip, hip to come out as non-heterosexual. And that's the cool thing. It's actually hard to be heterosexual in my circle. And I was afraid that me coming out would, you know, people think that being attention seeking. But with all the attention that I got, it turned out to be worth it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man. Okay, she goes on. In a world that labels us straight until we prove we're not, coming out of the closet is a continuous fight against stereotypes that's vital for me to be my authentic self. Wait, I want to play that again. This beginning part is so critical. In a world that labels us straight until we prove we're not coming out. In, in, in a world that assumes that we're straight until that we we say that we not and come out of the closet. Us straight until we prove we're not coming out of the we closet. Prove we're not. Is a continuous fight against stereotypes that's vital for me to be my authentic self. That's the agenda here. That has always been the agenda here. The, the agenda is not, hey, we should just let people live live their life and do what they want. The agenda is we want to reshape society so that this is so normalized that we will assume that you are fluid and you know you might be the the rare case where you come out of the closet as straight um and in a world that teaches so many of us that a demographic trait or a transcending a socially constructed box means i don't even know a transcending gender tree or a social just you know big words we're less worthy of love, not just graphic trait or a transcending a socially constructed box means we're less worthy of love, not just existing as me, but fully embracing my true self is a revolutionary act of resistance. First, I am at least not saying that people who come out as trans, whatever that means, you know, because she, she falls underneath this trans umbrella as being demisexual as being 
attracted to someone that they have a strong emotional bond with. So that, that's trans. So I'm, I'm not saying that she's less worthy of love. We're not saying that she's less of a human being. I'm not saying that she's less of anything. All I'm saying is maybe we shouldn't be pushing this, this, this indoctrination and normalization upon children through media, through the, the 240 some three, 290, 59 LGBTQ characters and through all of social media and, and celebrating and accepting it and saying, saying that this is normal because what we're seeing attached to all of this is high rates of suicide and high rates of depression. Why? And the thought is, well, okay, well, if we, if we normalize it, then we'll absolve these rates of suicide. But it's not happening. And that's, it's startling, but this is what they're trying to push. And then this last bit that she says here. Revolutionary act of resistance. That embracing my true self is a revolutionary act of resistance. Embracing my true self is a revolutionary act of resistance. Oh my. I didn't realize that embracing my true self was like resisting the systems of society. In fact, it sounds kind of the opposite. Embracing ourselves is, is a deeply selfish act. It's saying, I am, I'm going to look out for number one. And I guess, I guess maybe that's a deep, a deeply, it's an act of resistance. Resistance, but resistance against who? Who are you resisting? The, the culture around the world is, is celebrating, celebrating. So who, who exactly are, are we resisting? But she goes on. I've definitely always dreamed of a world in which nobody will have to come out because everybody's sexuality will be assumed fluid. There it is. There it is. I dream of a world where people won't have to come out because everyone's sexuality will be assumed to be fluid. I've definitely always dreamed of a world in which nobody will have to come out because everybody's sexuality will be assumed fluid and none of our business. Um, but in a world that force feeds cisgendered heterosexuality, coming out of the closet is a lifelong process of unpacking internalized social constructions and stigmas. Unpacking internalized social constructions and stigmas. It's a lifelong journey, folks. But hopefully one day we'll totally rewrite and reform society and we will win and we will finally build our brave new world. This is, I mean, this is what Adam Huxley wrote about in his book, Brave New World, a world where there's population control, a world where there's free love, where everyone was <laughs> gender sexual fluid. That's what the whole book is about. This dystopia of controlling society through overt sexual deviance and just a total embracing of self and embracing of pleasure. And that's what she's talking about here. This is the resistance. Embrace yourself and embrace, embrace pleasure. Whatever makes you feel good, that is your truth. That is who you are, even if it might lead to a 19 times increased rate of suicide over your lifetime. It's okay. You just embrace yourself because hey, global warming anyways, we got to you know stem this population. So we might as well embrace ourselves in the midst of it. Now, I got a text message this, this afternoon from my cousin, Sammy. Now, just I need to paint a, a visual picture of who Sam, Sammy is. Uh, he is, he is like built. I mean, if you look at me, this scrawny white dude, you just have to literally think of the opposite of me. He is, he is one of the strongest, most sports orientated, athletic, built dude, uh, probably that I know. Probably one of, one of the strongest guys I know. Now he does. I'd have to say he does carry a lot of insecurity with him. Uh, because when he was younger, his favorite cousin, me, would beat him up all the time. So I think er, I think he might still probably struggle with that somewhere deep in his psyche, knowing that a, a skinny white dude um, would frequently beat him up endlessly. But now he is engaged. His beautiful fiance. He's total alpha male. 
And he messaged me today saying, uh, you'd be surprised how many people have asked me to try dating a man before getting married to a female. It's crazy. I've been told you should try a guy. How do you know you don't like him if you've never tried one? Or it doesn't hurt to just try swinging the other way. He says it's honestly wild. See, gay dudes love straight men because they feel like they can turn them gay. And this is the point that, that Michaela is making in here. And this is the point that, <laughs> that my cousin Sammy is also making. It's, it's not just about, hey, I, I want to live my life the way that I want to with my own personal liberties. It is I am after transforming and reshaping society, and I'm going to use the media, the education. I'm going to use language. One, one thing we didn't touch on is within all of these conversations, they are framed in trans and non-trans. Like when you're making these arguments, you're making them in reference to the non-trans community, making trans being the normative thing, because that's the argument. Well, it's fluidity is the normative. After all, this is this is what what Michaela was saying right here. I've definitely always dreamed of a world in which nobody will have to come out because everybody's sexuality will be assumed fluid. That is what they're after, that everyone's sexuality would be assumed fluid. They are, they are not just after, they're not, I'll say it this way. It really is a slippery slope. There are no brakes on the train because the train's destination is that society in itself would be completely overhauled and transformed. And unless, unless we begin now to totally retool all of society, all of culture, all of our education systems and, and retool social media and retool the, the way that we allow our kids to engage with media, it will be it is going to be no matter what, but it will be a long road before we walk this back. But I do believe there is hope. I was talking to someone else today where let's just you saying I, I wish there was just a reset button. And there is. I do believe there is hope. I do believe there is freedom that can be found. I do believe that there are solutions to this this problem of of suicide and, and trans explosion, which as was called in this episode, it's an epidemic among young teen girls. There is a solution. Well, one solution that is out there is by girding up your society with language that can help guard them and defend them against this ideological movement, because it really is. As Michaela was saying, this is an ideological movement that is not just after the liberty of some people who are, are really bullied and pressed and, and hated on. It's not just about that. It is about reshaping global society. We're seeing it in Hungary. We're, we're seeing it in, in, in Europe. A, a listener messaged me about what they're seeing in, in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, about total flagrant push for this this new world order. Well, the way that we can help defend against this is by sharing this episode with a colleague or coworker, whether it's someone who totally disagrees with you or someone that agrees with you. I like sharing stuff with people that agree with me because, just because it helps me sleep better at night and it helps us build building blocks, bricks, of language in our wall so that we can defend our gates, so that we can know what's coming, so that we can be aware and guard against these ideologies that are truly looking to reform and reshape society. So one way that you can get more out of this show is by giving, sending this to someone else. They will feel loved because you thought of them and you will then have a great conversation with them about this and you will grow in your own understanding and hopefully be pushed to ask deeper and better questions 
from this as a springboard. Well, don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives. Well, today's quote is actually an an ancient Arabic proverb, which comes from uh, a listener, my friend Aziz in Saudi Arabia. And he sent this proverb over in Arabic. It's Yadun al-Sum fi al-Asl, which is they put poison in honey. Now, this is a great proverb, and it's true. They, they have packaged this poison in honey, especially for these young teen girls, where all of a sudden, their, their isolation, as they're going through puberty, the, the, the questions that they have, maybe the, the wounds, the abuse that they've suffered before, all of a sudden, it's put in perspective. It's put in perspective, and it's wrapped in this honey of, well, you're just depressed, and you never really know who you were, and you had all this repressed social boxes and norms and titles put on you. But if you just deconstruct all that, which, you know, will take your lifetime, but if you can deconstruct all that, then you can finally be free. And in that drinking of that sweet, sweet honey, where women begin to have double mastectomies or bind their chest so before they hit puberty, they... Their, their their breast tissues won't grow properly or get on adrenal, uh, uh, testosterone, which helps their anxiety in, in the, the onset in the early days. It really does help their anxiety. But after uh, a year or so, they have a testosterone crash. And who knows the actual effects that are happening to the, the female body over the long term. But they crash and they find out that this transition, oftentimes it finds out that this transition as young teens isn't solving the, the real problem, the underlying issues that were there that needed to be solved. And you wake up and maybe you wake up where your life has been destroyed, where you're no longer able to have children. And you're locked in to this way of life because of a decision that was in many ways made for you at a young age because of the way the system is working. And now I I know probably a lot of people, (laughs) if if you made it this far and you disagree with me, well, God bless you. And, uh, but I know a lot of people probably see this differently, but there is poison being put in, in, in our kids, honey, in the media, in the media realm, in the media sphere that is meant to, destroy and undermine society so that everyone is gender fluid. And it is our responsibility, our responsibility to defend against that. Well, thanks for listening to the show. I hope, uh, I hope you go out this week and remember that, that we do not stand on truth. That's our truth, but we look to We look to the guidelines, the moral plumb lines of society that we stand by, that we hold by. We look to the the moral eternal truths that are immutable and we hold fast to those. So go out and own your future.